0: You are listening to the Eating Disorders Recovery Podcast with me, Tabitha Farrar? Hello there, welcome to this week's podcast. This week, you're going to hear a conversation that I had with a lady called Colleen Reichman, and she is a licensed clinical psychologist. She has also recovered from an eating disorder herself, so this sort of fits in the recovery stories theme that I've been running throughout the beginning of this year. And um, we're going to hear about her recovery. We're going to hear about what led her to be working in the field of eating disorders after having recovered from one. And we talk about health at every size and the importance of accepting body diversity for clinicians and just about actually everybody in the world. I think that's important for and also activism around that. So I'm just going to play our conversation. Here's Colleen. Um, so,
1: yeah, my name is Colleen Reichman, and I'm a licensed clinical psychologist. I work at the College of William and Mary down here in Williamsburg, Virginia. Um, and I also have a private practice called Wildflower Therapy. And I specialize in working with people who struggle with eating disorders and body image issues.
0: Mm-hmm. And how long have you been
1: doing that? Let's see, I have been, well, I've only been in Virginia for the past year and a half. Um, that I've been working in the field for, oof, I guess, five-ish years now.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, what led you to guess? It, you know, be interested in working with eating disorders and body image issues? Well, the interesting thing is,
1: I um, so I recovered from my own eating disorder. I struggled all throughout high school and college, mm-hmm. and um, I definitely wanted to go into psychology and to be a clinical psychologist, but I was really certain that I never wanted to work with anyone who had an eating disorder. Oh, really? I <laughs> yeah. I, I told everybody that. I was kind of like, I think at that point, I was still not um, really where I am today in terms of recovered or recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was I just thought it would take me to a really dark place and I wanted to put all of that behind me. Yep.
0: Yeah. Um, I know exactly yeah. what you mean. I did the, I did the exact same thing. It's sort of all really? the, first, yeah, just sort of really close after recovery. I was like, I don't want anything to do with eating disorders. I went and got myself a marketing job. I, I really got into that. I was working in tech, mm-hmm. but then, you know, a little, a couple of years later, I was just, I, I do have something to give here. and yes. So I came completely back around and then it turns out I quit my tech job. (laughs) But yeah, so it sounds like something similar with, with you. You needed that space.
1: Yes. Mm-hmm. I, and I love hearing when other people had a similar trajectory because sometimes I feel like the odd person out who wasn't, you know, sure they were going to go work with eating disorders and make a difference in this field after recovery. Um, so I love hearing that you also were I, like,
0: no, oh. I was pretty sure I wasn't going to <laughs> at that point. Yes. Um, and what you said was really interesting there as well. I just felt like it wouldn't have been the healthiest thing for me, even in the first year. You know, I, I needed I needed a couple of years. Um, yeah, yeah,
1: same. I needed space from it, and I said I would do. Actually, I was I was okay with doing research in the area, mm-hmm. but I just thought, you know, I can't make a difference. That's not something that's going to be helpful to me or for anybody else. Um, but I definitely had it in my mind, for whatever reason, that I was still going to work with people who struggle with body image. Right. So when I got into the whole practicum experience when I started actually providing therapy, um, eating disorders just kind of, when you specify that you want to work with body image issues, eating disorders just kind of comes along with the territory, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I just, um, I sort, I guess I just kind of got thrown in and I realized as soon as I started doing it, you know, being the actual therapist and doing actual eating disorders therapy that I loved it and I had empathy for this problem, um, unlike any other illness that I've ever worked with. So it just kind of clicked in and I was like, I have to do this. I'm at the place now where I can and I have to.
0: Yeah. And I think it's wonderful because I think that there's so much insight in there as well. Um, And it's, you know, it's a a really um, tricky field, I think. And I think that we've just spoken about giving that necessary time to get fully recovered and fully just that space away from your own experience to then actually be able to uh, give back to other people in a healthy way for everybody involved and I think that there's a I think that some people are sort of quite suspicious of oh people who have recovered themselves but I think that the problem is is that a lot of the time people who have recovered themselves and then go on to treat other people as therapists aren't or dietitians or anything actually aren't actually fully recovered themselves and right that can i agree that that can be hugely problematic
1: yeah i mean i can't imagine um i, I remember because i worked on two inpatient units since i since i started working in the field and when i disclosed to one group that i had a, a history of an eating disorder that a group member was like talk about triggering you know working here what is that like <laughs> and in my mind i was like you know um, I could see how it would, how it would be very, very triggering and almost unethical to try to do it if I was still very much in exactly. my eating disorder. Yeah, yeah, Yep. yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. Um, and and then that's confusing as well, isn't it? When when someone says that and you're thinking like, well, I'm fully recovered and have been for a while, so no, yeah, I'm, it's not triggering. That's the whole point of being fully recovered is that I don't get triggered yeah. by this stuff.
1: Yeah, it it made me definitely take a step back and feel gratitude like mm-hmm. oh my gosh I oh wait I'm not triggered at all and this is I, I'm so far away from that yes and I kind of forget to feel grateful every day about that
0: yes I know I know and, and I I I usually I do feel grateful every day about a lot of things <laughs> mm-hmm. um so um you know so tell me a little bit about your 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 journey your story and what you learned along the way Sure. So so, um,
1: I started struggling with an eating disorder, like I said, in high school. I think that I really had the perfect storm of the genetics and the environment, the temperament, um, a family history of eating disorders. I had really all of it to come together um, and make a perfect storm. I was definitely a really perfectionistic, high-strung little kid My mom always tells the story of when we were, I was also in ballet lessons when I was younger. And when we were really little, like four-year-olds taking these ballet lessons, um, there's a story of me, like, I guess a ballerina fell over or something during a recital because we were four. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: so... The audience started laughing because it was cute, and I turned to the audience and put my hands on my hips and glared at them. I was like, "Take us seriously." <laughs> and so that's that's kind of my demeanor: um, super perfectionistic, very achievement oriented, and then also I just had really low self-esteem. Um, I don't remember ever not, you know, when I was when I was in elementary, middle, and high school, I don't ever remember not having that low self-esteem. And, um, I also was very, very sensitive. It was the family joke that I was hypersensitive. Um, and people would always, you know, tell me stop being so sensitive. And I, I was always kind of like, I don't know how I, I feel everything. I, everything, I feel it all the time. I don't know what you mean when you say stop being so sensitive, Um, so that was me, which I know I sound like a really fun little kid. I promise I was also fun. I also had, uh, fun qualities, but (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't just like a bundle of nerves and low self-esteem and, um, a ballet dancer getting angry at the audience. But, uh, my family was always really interested in exercising and clean eating and things like that. So, uh, my mom which you know, she was this was totally her trying to be super helpful to all of us But anytime somebody was struggling with their mood or something she would suggest exercise um, So I think it all just clicked in I joined the track team when I was in high school and immediately started losing weight and It just sort of took off from there. I got yeah, I got great feedback about it. Um, and for me, there was, it was a really quick escalation into running, um, and, and then just other behaviors. All, it was just very, it was almost like I went down the rabbit hole yeah. and it was a, it was a str- there was no gradual shift into an eating disorder. It was for whatever reason, just really quick down the rabbit hole, all sorts of behaviors, um, you know, all throughout high school. Mm-hmm. And then into college college was everything got worse because there i was still super low self-esteem using all these eating disorder behaviors and then you know of course drinking my body weight in alcohol four mm-hmm. or five times a week mm-hmm. so as you can imagine it was i was yeah. things did not go well no no <laughs> so yeah everything could just kind of progressed throughout college and um In terms of turning, so I usually don't tell, you know, talk publicly about levels of care and things like that, my own personal journey, because I noticed that, um, yeah, my work with clients, and I I remember this for myself when I was struggling, there's often uh, a symptom that is kind of a competition. Absolutely. To see, yeah, who got the sickest, and um, I don't think levels of care are even indicative of who's actually you know, quote unquote sickest. Yeah. But I typically like to leave that out of the discussion and just say, I tried different things. I tried uh, all sorts of things. I was very, very resistant for many years. Um, I was the client that I, yeah, you know, I was definitely a problem client. Yeah. I sort of mocked therapists and I had no interest in recovering. So and I was being forced into it. So I was very mean, Very, very mean to therapists. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Yes, and I was definitely, um, yeah, I I was defiant, to say the least. Um, And I think in terms of a turning point, it kind of was back and forth, like weight gain, weight loss, um, behavior usage, not using behaviors. Uh, It was like that all throughout college, And I really, I think the problematic part was that my, you know, everybody who knew my struggle in college, once I, you know, tried something else and weight restored and things like that, all the kind of support and comments, you know, concern and things like that dropped away. Yeah. And it was, she's better. She's all good. So that was, you know... I think that that prolonged the recovery process for me and me not being able to, I just didn't have the tools to verbalize that that was not helping.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: So um, yeah, kept that kind of went back and forth all throughout college. And then I always say, in terms of what actually flipped the switch for me, it was just ambivalence. It was like, I guess maybe a little bit more than ambivalence. I was sick of being this, what yeah. sick sick girl, I guess? Yep. Sick and tired of it. So it wasn't this like grand, beautiful light bulb moment. It was, you know, just getting sick and tired of being sick and tired, yeah. honestly.
0: Yeah. And so what were some of the most useful parts after after you'd sort of started to get sick and tired of mm-hmm. um, your eating disorder? What were the most what were the useful parts? What what helps you get to where you are now?
1: Um Well, I guess behaviorally, abstaining from exercise for a while was very useful. And just in general, I think putting distance between myself and behaviors, Mm. um, I think that that was huge. Like Mm. it's, you can talk the talk and you could probably get to the point where you could even teach it the coping skills and things like that. But if you're not behaviorally implementing and actually Mm. trying to make those changes, it doesn't happen. Right, right. So that distance, I think, was really, really helpful. The longer I went, the, lo- the longer it was like, well, I don't want to do that now. It's been, it's yep. not a week. So yep,
0: yep, yep, yep. I think
1: so. so. That, yeah, so that, I think it, that was huge. Um And then also in graduate school, so I was still kind of like moving along in that recovery journey because I started graduate school right out of college Mm -hmm. and learning and being introduced to health at every size and a whole new paradigm of thinking about our bodies and our relationship with food.
0: That was huge for me. So Um, what is it? When did you first learn about health at every size? And what was it that sort of clicked with you about it?
1: So I first learned about health at every size about halfway into graduate school. Um, and what clicked with me was, so I, it was bizarre trying to recover from a disorder where I was terrified of weight gain in a really fat phobic culture. Like I just think it wasn't named for me. And so it felt very, it, it just, it's unnatural and unbelievably difficult. So Health at Every Size was helpful in allowing me to name that, yes, our culture has a great deal of fat phobia and a lot of it's unfounded. And by the way, here are the roots of how, uh, you know, that that started um, and sort of unearthing the diet culture mentality that sort of led to us demonizing folks in larger bodies for no real reason besides kind of money-making behind all of it.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And that was really helpful, I think, to be able to just learn about that and have the knowledge and then move to start challenging, first of all, my own bias about other people in larger bodies to really start challenging that. Um, I don't know how you fully recover or you recover from an eating disorder while you're still terrified of weight gain and terrified of... um, and really biased towards other people in larger bodies. I don't know how that could actually work. So starting to challenge that uh, was super helpful. And then also my own internalized uh, weight stigma right. and fear. And I an, another thing with health at every size or just the idea behind it, that's, or maybe this is less health at every size and a, a little bit more of um, a different movement was I stopped trying to be obsessively in love with my body like I stopped trying to uh acknowledge you know I'm you know I'm beautiful and I love the way my body looks and just move towards viewing it as more of a tool that I respect and Mm -hmm. I can get you know around in the world in it but I don't have to you know make myself love my appearance so to speak because it's going to change
0: anyway Uh, yes and this is one of the sort of problems that I have with um the the body love type memes and things like that. Like we all have to find this jumping through sunsets relationship with our yes. bodies. It's like, it, yeah, it doesn't have to actually be like that. It, and I think that people sometimes think when they don't have that, that they, they're not achieving something that they should be achieving. And right. Like, yeah, we, we don't all have to be sort of like Instagram crazy in love with our bodies to... Uh, accept and respect them yeah because the thing
1: is I was always like you know I could I guess I could work really hard to love my body as it is now but what about like down lo- the road if I get pregnant it's going to change what about after I'm pregnant it's going to be you know mm-hmm. changed forever what about when I'm 50 60 you know I, I'm, I'm living and aging my body changes every single year that seems exhausting mm-hmm. to try to just like you know be really unicorns and sunshine about appearance when I could shift to focusing my time and energy onto what I'm giving to this world and other traits that I know will be there when I'm 90 you know with me
0: absolutely it's like in falling in love with a person isn't it if you fall in love with a person for their looks it's never going to last past the age of whatever yes Um, yeah Um, so true so you um you mentioned sort of um sort of body diversity and accepting people in larger bodies. Um, something that interests me that I think a, a trap that, that um, I maybe fell into and other people do as well is that, that thing of like, oh, I accept all body sizes. It's fine for other people to be in larger bodies, just not me. That kind of thing. Right. Which yes. is really sort of quite ugly. And it was an ugly thing I had to call myself out on. And be like, I'm doing this, and that's hypocritical. Actually, <laughs> and, um, yes,
1: me I have too. to sort
0: that out. It's it's about sort of, I guess, you know, like I wouldn't make a fattest comment about anybody else in the world, but I would have those thoughts about my own self, which is still those thoughts.
1: Hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think calling that out for yourself, it really takes guts, and it takes, I think, an immense amount of courage to finally turn and say, I'm not. You know, I'm saying this, but I don't know if I'm actually walking the walk, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually did a presentation at the BETA conference back in November about therapists and dietitians addressing their own internalized weight phobia before, you know, working in the field or as you're working in the field, being sure to do that because all of those sort of subconscious or even conscious feelings and beliefs you have about people in larger bodies you're going to bring that in the room and whether your clients in a larger body or a smaller body it's in the room so you have to do the work to call yourself out and challenge it and really put dogged effort into um, you know
0: eradicating that for yourself yeah i actually i didn't i didn't I, I didn't go to that talk how do you think that was accepted at the conference <laughs> I
1: think, it, I mean, the BETA conference is a pretty great group of, of professionals in that they're very much aware of, you know, the social justice elements of the eating disorder profession and uh, health at every size is very embraced. We don't even use the words overweight or obese, you know, these medicalized terms for mm. people in larger bodies. And at that conference, we were expressly told not to. So I think people were open to it, I, I, you know, I sense that it elicited emotion, because we did some experiential exercises where we asked people to reflect on what it would be like if they gained, you know, X amount of pounds, a really high number of pounds, how they would feel in terms of their family life, their relate, you know, romantic relationships, how they might feel at their place of employment. Um, and then we asked people to share. So I, I do think it elicited some emotion. Yeah. And it was, probably enlightening for for people just like it was enlightening for me to have to do that work myself I really had to challenge uh, you know my own weight stigma to reach the point of re- that turning point in recovery I truly believe that was uh, one of the main pieces for me
0: I agree and I think it's one of the hardest parts as well um, it's usually kind of like one of the final things to to change, I think, um, for many people, and mm-hmm. to kind of like that, that, just takes consistent and not and pretty uncomfortable work uh, um, with your own mental processes, I think, and just kind of working through that and calling out your own biases and being very honest. Mm-hmm. And being honest with yourself if you have privilege,
1: you know, thin privilege, I've definitely had to show up and acknowledge that. I yeah. remember at that. The beta conference saying to the when we introduce ourselves, I said that I acknowledge the privilege that I have in talking about marginalized bodies as a white, you know, thin cis woman mm-hmm. who doesn't, you know, receive half of is not marginalized in the same way as somebody, for example, in a larger body. I think understanding that and understanding the privilege that you we do have uh, moving around in the world without having, for example, a doctor tell you when you come in for an ear infection that you have to lose weight and that that's the cure. Um, as somebody in the larger body does every time they go to the doctor's office, that's important to understand it's and acknowledge so for yourself.
0: It's so difficult, though, because I know that you probably as a health at every size activist or you know, like um, therapist, it probably also faced with that just people looking at you like you're completely crazy when you try and explain Mm -hmm. that weight loss is not the cure for all ailments if somebody is in a larger body like like it's so (laughs) entrenched that people look at you like you're just completely like but what no like how could it not be the answer it's yeah it's
1: it's definitely like swimming upstream the Mm. whole time Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I'm sometimes I get in like a little bubble where I'm surrounded by all these other health at every size professionals and advocates so then I forget I have like a rude awakening when I'm just talking to um somebody in the feet like a doctor or just somebody that I work with maybe that's not health at every size informed and I discuss how I don't believe in intentional weight loss um I get a rude awakening of like well that you don't make any sense. You sound, you know, like you don't know what you're talking about at all.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, it can get to the point where it's maybe so obvious to somebody who understands health of every size that for an ear infection, weight loss should not be the go-to, um, right? <laughs> the, the go-to thing. But it, then it's just so alien to somebody who who isn't, and they're like, well, of course, of course, you have to lose weight because everybody knows that weight is the enemy and causes all illnesses in the world it's it's sometimes i think that the mind mindsets can seem so far apart that it's different difficult to even find a place of understanding
1: yeah that common ground and also i find it's difficult if you only have a minute or two Mm. to really like plant that seed and get in there and make that help that person make that shift to absolutely sum up yeah i've i've had some success in using like a really quick, you know, I've read a lot of research about how the social justice um, issues and the, you know, the marginalization that people in larger bodies face on a daily basis Mm -hmm. contributes much more to health problems in the long term than just weight as its own standalone variable does. I've had some success in just saying that sentence, right? (laughs) you know, getting that in there and then hopefully planting the seed, but it it definitely took some trial and error and yeah. fumbling.
0: And I think it's often difficult to, like you said, in a limited amount of time, have that sort of conversation. But it's also difficult to have that sort of conversation and then not end up talking about something like diabetes. Like you could start off about talking about an ear infection, and then mm-hmm. you mentioned that okay, well, you know, weight loss is not the answer to every every health issue, and then suddenly people come back with but but diabetes or something like that when you're just like mm-hmm. we're not the person doesn't have diabetes we're not talking about that um it, it just seems that um it's, it's it's a bit like um you know sort of you're talking to somebody who has strong vegan beliefs and they're sort of like well you're either vegan or you're just all you do every day is eat mcdonald's and it's like no there's there's yeah it's just
1: yeah yeah and it's a, i think there's a little bit of Boundary setting that we have to do for ourselves when we're something upstream like this. Like I've I've had to tell myself I am not going to change everybody's mind and the di- the diabetes uh, Comment is definitely I get that, you know similar the same I've, so often I get that retort um, Which I've learned to say back to that that with the diabetes it's a lot of um, if we were to look at people with yellow teeth and lung cancer and not look any deeper into things, we would assume that yellow teeth cause lung mm-hmm. cancer. But there's this other variable we need to take into account. And some of these things, like diabetes, um, may be similar to that. We're saying weight gain causes it when there's you know, likely a lot of other factors Absolutely. that we're worrying.
0: Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay, so... What, you know, you you work in this field and you have done for a while. What is in the next, you know, the next couple of years, what are the the main things? You sound like you're kind of quite activist. Um, (laughs) You know, what are the main things that you are hoping are going to change in this field?
1: Hmm, I really hope to incorporate more activism, first of all, into my work, just because I think that there's sometimes when you're training in graduate school, um, it's either activists or therapists and you can't be both because you shouldn't be sharing your personal beliefs. And I, um, I reject that. (laughs) I reject that mentality, but I want to continue to reject it and to incorporate activism and social justice into my everyday work. And I think that the eating disorder field for a while has been sort of, Professionals have been colluding with eating disorder mentality Mm -hmm. when it comes to fat phobia by, first of all, focusing the, by and large, all of our research on anorexia Mm -hmm. and um, using weight as a barometer for recovery Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, managed care colludes with that as well. Some of it right now can't be avoided, but I think continuing to work to raise awareness about about that. And professional, our own blind spots when it comes to what we've been taught DSM wise about eating disorders and what um, is actually applicable, and what you know we're saying and doing that's colluding with eating disorder mentality versus helping. I think is definitely something that I want to continue to work on and to help others work on as well. And then just getting the health at every size message out there and. Um, eating disorder or not the field of psychology needs to hear this message and I need I think we need to shout it from the rooftops and do everything we can to do as much seed planning as possible so that um hopefully one day you know that person in a larger body is not going into the doctor's office for the ear infection and getting told to lose weight hopefully one day there's um you know just more of a a a less demonizing world for all body
0: types. A less demonizing world for all body types is certainly something that I'm interested in working towards. Thank you for Dr. Reichmann for coming and talking to me today on the podcast. I will link to information where you can find Dr. Reichman on the show notes to this episode. But if you want to know right now, then it's www.coleenreichman.com. And she has a website called Wildflower Therapy. And she also has an Instagram account, which is Dr. Colleen Reichman. Two N's on the Reichman. So it's M-A-N-N. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Until next time, cheers and cheerio.